Ralph Waldo Emerson was a 19th century essayist, poet, and philosopher from New England who has had a wide-ranging influence in America and throughout Europe in his day and since that time. His poem, Boston Hymn, is not spoken in praise of God, but rather as a call from God to humankind to do the Lord's will, to unbind the captive. And leading God's revolution, my angel, his name is Freedom. We are told the new year in Boston began with joyful celebrations of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which went into effect, as promised, on the 1st of January, 1863. There was a huge gathering at the Music Hall where Emerson read his Boston hymn. Before an enthusiastic audience, he intoned the words of the poem he composed just for this occasion. One member of that audience described it as a hymn of liberty and justice, wide and strong and musical, and noted that Emerson's passionate lines spellbound the great assembly. The audience, a veritable who's who of New England's intellectual class, included Francis Parkman, Charles Eliot Norton, Edward Everett Hale, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and several other notables. The jubilant crowd gave three cheers for Lincoln and three cheers for William Lloyd Garrison, abolitionist and journalist, who had once been the object of odium and derision for many. As George Fredrickson notes, at this point in the war, everyone, it appeared, had become an abolitionist. The Boston Post later reported that the Jubilee concert at Music Hall was in honor of the day, the proclamation, the emancipation of the slave, the spirit of the fathers, and the Constitution. The official program included the names of several members of the Saturday Club, among them Longfellow, Emerson, Holmes, Whittier, Josiah Quincy, Jr., James T. Fields, and E.P. Whipple. The large and diverse audience included a number of black Bostonians. A similar celebration was held at Tremont Temple, where Frederick Douglass was the featured speaker. There, following the announcement of the good news of the proclamation, the audience, which was predominantly black, adjourned to Boston's leading Negro church, the 12th Baptist, where the celebration continued for some time. New England liberals knew that a truly great victory had been won, despite the limited nature of the proclamation. The Boston Daily Evening Transcript declared, Slavery from this hour ceases to be a political power in the country. Such a righteous revolution as it inaugurates never goes backwards. Now, many realized that the war to save the Union had become much more. It was now a revolution to win the freedom of four million slaves. But the progress would not stop there. As usual, following each such victory, New England liberals pressed forward toward the next goal, which now included not only universal emancipation, but also equal rights. A far-reaching, expansive political and cultural revolution was now gaining momentum in America, 
more and more Americans were discovering that they were not, in the words of the spectator, merely Englishmen in their shirt sleeves. They were members of a unique and diverse society composed of a vast array of people living side by side, a society that included African Americans, immigrants from virtually every European country, sophisticated college-educated elites from the East, and uneducated backwoodsmen from the West, as well as Native Americans from the frontier. All of these and more were the warp and woof of a diverse social fabric that was unlike any other in the world. This revolutionary vision was now taking hold throughout the North as a result of a de facto alliance between a rail splitter from the West and a coterie of gifted intellectuals from the East. Such an unlikely alliance could only happen in democratic America. For New England liberals like Emerson, Lowell, Norton, Higginson, and the others, the original ideal dream of America was now at last materializing. Words of Dr. Len Gujan from his new study, Culture and Conflict, New England, Old England, and the Civil War, a project he's been working on for about 10 years. Dr. Gujan's been a distinguished university fellow and professor of American literature at the University of Scranton. He is past president of the Ralph Waldo Emerson Society and recipient of its Distinguished Achievement Award. Dr. Gujan is author of Virtue's Hero, Emerson, Anti-Slavery and Reform, Emerson and Eros, and Emerson's Truth, Emerson's Wisdom. In reviewing the results of his extensive research for this new study, Dr. Gujan believes that the Black Lives Matter movement began in earnest during the Civil War, and it began in New England. Both the Confederacy and the British Empire rested on the principle of white supremacy. The cultural alliance between the governing classes in England and their southern counterparts that emerged during the war was the result. New England liberals and reformers like Emerson opposed both. They fought for freedom and equal rights for all people everywhere. And, Dr. Gujan writes as we heard, for the New England liberals like Emerson and the others, with the Emancipation Proclamation, the original ideal dream of America was now at last materializing. And even though the dream has yet to be realized, even now in 2020, Dr. Gujan believes it is important to understand the ideas, ideals, and actions of the New Englanders in the early 1860s to help us understand what is unfolding in the world around us today. Dr. Gujan explains. This particular project began when I was finishing work on my first book, which eventually was titled Virtue's Hero, Emerson, Anti-Slavery and Reform. And I was reading through his materials at the Houghton Library at Harvard, where they are all on file. And I came across several letters from British correspondents that were sent during the Civil War period. And my study went up and passed that period. And they revealed a strong element of alienation regarding what was happening in America in the context of the Civil War. And the alienation revolved around the fact that these major British writers, intellectual figures, actually were more favorably disposed toward the Confederacy than they were toward the North. And this came as a great shock 
to New England writers who were America's greatest writers. This is Ralph Waldo Emerson, James Russell Lowell, Henry Wadsworth, Longfellow, John Greenleaf Whittier. You had to have three names to be famous then, (laughs) and others uh, that um, their English cousins, whom they saw as part of the same Anglo-American tradition in, in literature and culture, Uh, would actually be siding with the barbarism uh, of slavery uh, and the Confederacy. And what it showed, finally, as I began to put the pieces of the puzzle together, because I was doing this research over a long period of time, was that the high Victorians, uh, the major writers like Thomas Carlyle, Alfred Lord Tennyson, who was the poet laureate, John Ruskin, the famous art critic, Charles Dickens, and others, When they looked at the United States, they felt that Southern society was a closer model to Victorian society because of its class structure. The Victorians believed deeply that a truly progressive society had to observe a hierarchy where class, caste, and race played important roles. Uh, And so you had the uh, saving remnant, as Matthew Arnold, another one of them, called it uh, the elites, uh, the intellectuals, the governing class who are at the top. And then uh, from there, it went down to a small middle class in uh, Victorian England and then a huge working class. And that working class, they believe, was born to work, to do the hard labor and that this was um, a natural hierarchy that uh, God had foreordained. And uh, when they looked at the South, they saw something very similar, also a hierarchy, more, more of an aristocracy than a democracy, with a handful of wealthy planters uh, who were on top, a very small middle class of what was at that time called mean whites, right? And then the black population, which was predominantly slaves. And so that looked to them uh, like Victorian England. But they also had a concern with Northern democracy because it was liberal democracy. Uh, That is, everybody was free, and that in many but not all places, everybody got to vote. Every adult male got to vote. And as a result of that, there was a huge literate middle class And um, this middle class provided the energy that was pushing the society forward, expanding exponentially on every level, economic, uh, geographical, political, geopolitical power. And the thing that most intimidated these Victorians was that uh, this was being done by what in England was the underclass, And so it was seen as a direct threat to the paradigm, not only of life in England, but perhaps even more importantly, the British Empire. Now, in 1860, the British Empire was at the top of its game. Uh, They ruled almost a quarter of the globe was under British rule. And this would include what is today India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, large portions of North Africa, the West Indies, all of Canada, all of these places were ruled by Great Britain, administered as uh, colonies and territories under uh, the auspices of the British Empire. Now, in this instance, race was the primary justification 
for their domination of these distant lands, which are all inhabited by indigenous people. And the British justified their colonization with the claim that they were bringing to them the benefits of civilization that were created by an advanced race foreordained by God to bring this enlightenment into the world. And so here's Great Britain with this vast empire, and they had abolished slavery in their empire, and they considered themselves the most progressive, advanced, and liberal society on earth. And if you compared it to other countries in Europe at the time, they were right. France was ruled by an emperor, uh, Napoleon, and most of the other major nations in Europe were, as a result of the revolutions of 1848 and the reaction that followed, under the thumb of a strong central power. And so the British, uh, who did have a parliamentary democracy, saw themselves as advanced and um, the, the leading light for a civilized society. So in the North, in America, liberal democracy was a threat to that because it empowered what they called the vulgar mob, that they had far too much uh, influence, and that that influence was inciting the underclass in Great Britain to demand uh, similar rights uh, because they all, the reformers in Great Britain, all looked to America as what they called North, the northern states of America as the model republic. And they argued if the common man in America can be empowered and can choose progressive leadership, and if northern America especially is progressing in leaps and bounds, uh, expanding the economy, again, geopolitical influence, et cetera, then why doesn't the same principle apply to us? And um, that was a question that the British elites were not prepared to answer, right? And they would prefer to, uh, to avoid it. So that set up an, a circumstance of alienation as the high Victorians became more and more critical of the North as the war progressed and were either neutral toward the Confederacy, uh, but covertly supportive of it, or overtly supportive uh, of it. Uh, and so that's what this entire study is about. It had huge impact on culture in both places, because in the United States, in the North, in, in the country as a whole, initially in, eight, in 1860, of course, we elected what they considered uh, to be a, a vulgar, and self-educated, uncouth lawyer, backwoods lawyer from Illinois to be our president, which they thought was the ultimate signifier of uh, doom uh, for liberal democracy, that Lincoln was in no way equipped to, to take on leadership, especially at a time of crisis, and that he paled in comparison to major figures like George Washington uh, and other leaders of the revolutionary period whom they point out, uh, would point out, were uh, educated and matured when the United States was still a British colony uh, and therefore had all of the benefits of that aristocratic uh, orientation. So this led them to become very critical of American literature, which they said was uh, designed to appeal to the common person. Literacy rates in the United States, again, in the North, were far greater than they were in Great Britain because of the prevalence of common schools. You're talking about the writers and so on, and one of the key points you make is that New England and its writers, like Emerson, had a critical role to play in shaping the larger context of the issues 
of that fraught time. Your chapter on 1863 as a shifting point mm-hmm. in this book is so reminiscent of some of the things that we're experiencing now. Could you talk to us a little bit about how you see that? Yeah. The New England intelligentsia, I, I will call them, and this would be writers, thinkers, philosophers, artists, teachers, were all influenced in one way or another by Embersonian idealism. Emerson was an idealist. He once said or defined transcendentalism as the new name for idealism in our age, uh, he said. And his idealism was predicated on the notion that there is something in every one of us that is divine, uh, that we shared in this universal divinity that he called the Oversoul. And because of that, we are all equally precious and entitled to the dignity that divinity imparts impartially to all human beings. You can see how this would lead to opposition to slavery and any other kind of bigotry and discrimination that attempted to deny that kind of equality to all human beings. Well, Emerson preached that idealism consistently in the form of transcendentalism, and he called upon people in the early stages of the transcendental movement to self-reform. Self-culture was the instrument that would then lead to the reform of the entire society. It's kind of like Michael Jackson saying, I'm going to begin with the man in the mirror. Uh, And that's what Emerson was preaching. But then, as the anti-slavery movement began to heat up and the South became more and more reactionary in defense of slavery, and more literally censorious uh, of any expressions of anti-slavery in, in their midst, uh, the uh, males, for example, were not allowed to distribute abolition literature. Abolition lecturers would be threatened uh, with death and destruction if they attempted to express their views uh, in the South. Even preachers were told not to raise the subject of slavery and morality in their sermons. Well, what happens then if, if you're largely dependent upon moral suasion in order to raise the masses to embrace self-improvement and then to improve the society if you can't reach them, right? Uh, if there has been an interdiction uh, of the communication. And that's what led him to become more and more proactive in the anti-slavery movement, a kind of militant transcendentalism now, where he's deploying the notion of uh, transcendental idealism to stimulate within individuals a willingness to resist openly and vigorously the spreading corruption uh, of American slavery because the influence of the slave states was becoming greater and greater throughout the 1850s, beginning in 1850 with the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law, uh, which for the first time would allow slave owners to pursue their runaway slaves into the free states and to seize them and to return them to bondage previous to the fugitive slave law. States like Massachusetts had personal liberty laws which protected those individuals because slavery didn't exist in Massachusetts. That was the principle. But with the passage of that federal law, it overrode state laws. And so now those slave owners can come 
into Massachusetts or their agents and seize this runaway property and return it to bondage. And so de facto, slavery does exist in Massachusetts if you can pursue people you claim are slaves and capture them there and return them. So in response to that, Emerson and other, other uh, idealists were becoming more and more aggressive, demanding physical resistance, for example, to the return of fugitive slaves. And that happened with Anthony Burns. Uh, there, there was an, uh, a violent effort to, uh, to defend uh, him that ultimately failed. But before that, Thomas Sims did manage to escape because of, uh, of a crowd that freed him and uh, spirited him uh, off. So it was becoming more and more of a violent uh, militant resistance that was informed by that uh, idealism. But it, it goes back to this early notion of the demands of idealism that Emerson said in Self-Reliance, his most famous essay, God will not have his work done by cowards. And he also said in that essay, every man has my blood and I have every man's blood. And that the combination of these two uh, was a demand, by implication at least, that individuals exert themselves in order to oppose active evil with active idealism. And so they, they did that. He admired John Brown and uh, actually donated money to buy Sharp's rifles for him. John Brown stayed at, at his, visited his, his home in Concord where he was lecturing to raise money. He stayed at that time in Henry David Thoreau's mother's boarding house uh, where Thoreau met him. And of course, it was John Brown who led the raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859 that finally, many would argue, led to the explosion of the Civil War, that it's, it's going to be warfare from now on. And so when the war did break out, Emerson and the others believed that this is the time to seize the moment. Here is our opportunity to proactively destroy the institution that moral suasion could not reach. And so that led to their vigorous efforts throughout the war to argue for emancipation, but with each step forward from emancipation to civil rights and to complete equal rights, which became, you know, in the eyes of many, the most extreme imaginable proposition, that not only would the slaves be freed, but they would enjoy equal rights with all other citizens. This is what really scared the British more than anything else. It was after the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in September of 1862 that their resistance to Northern efforts to emancipate and the Northern efforts in the war and generally became accelerated. And of course, this is verbal exchanges. These are, these are magazines that are going back and forth across the Atlantic and they're arguing against equality, overtly arguing against the notion of equality that it is pernicious, that it's destructive, that it will lead to chaos in the state, that it will lead to a mobocracy. All of the things that they said uh, somewhat discreetly about liberal democracy in general, they now said overtly in opposition to emancipation. And they really acted as the surrogates uh, for the Southerners in making this case because they were publishing in the most prestigious journals of opinion and popular magazines in England. Uh, and those routinely crossed the Atlantic. And so this propaganda was uh, spreading through the efficacy of the British elites who were promote, promoting it.
and that was most disconcerting uh, to these uh, to these New Englanders. But their strategy was to encourage Lincoln to become more and more liberal in his attitude towards emancipation and then the rights that would follow on it. So with every step forward, uh, and the first step was when Union generals were told that they could consider runaway slaves not as property to be returned under the auspices of the Fugitive Slave Law, but instead contraband that could then be utilized by the Union Army itself in building fortifications and, you know, providing services that any army uh, would need. And so they became a civilian workforce. They were paid for their efforts, and de facto they were freed. But by American law and the Constitution, they were the property of their southern owners. And those southern owners sometimes approached these Union generals and said, we want our property back. And some Union generals and some lesser officers were actually returning fugitive slaves. Uh, And that practice uh, ceased with the passage of the Confiscation Act. And so that was the first step towards liberating slaves. And that then led to the Emancipation Proclamation in September of 1862, which then went into effect in January of 1863. And that led to further demands now, not only for emancipation of, of slaves in the southern states, but there were four border states that had never left the Union, and there were slaves in all of those states. And now the demand was universal emancipation. And then that would be followed by equal rights for everybody. So it was a grand crusade that was taking place. But I would argue it, it really originates in New England with the idea of equality based upon shared divinity, which Emerson defined as the oversoul. We all participate in this universal divinity and that it is the source of all virtue, all truth, all goodness, and the more we open ourselves to it, then the more good is brought into the world. The more we resist it, then the more evil prospers, Uh, and that was their uh, argument. It is remarkable, Erica, to see how deeply committed they were to these ideals. Looking at it from our perspective, where it seems so many people cannot see beyond what they consider their own petty self-interest, that these were people who believed in principles that were so dear to them that they would die for them. And those principles were ennobling, and they believed the entire society would benefit from the sacrifice made in the name of these ideals. And they saw them expressed most eloquently in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They believed it. (laughs) And not only did they believe it, they acted upon it. And this is something that the Southerners never really believed. And quite frankly, the British didn't believe it until the Civil War. I mean, how could you believe that all men are created equal and tolerate the institution of slavery? There were four million slaves in America. And so for these high Victorians, it was kind of like 
a wink and a nod. Oh, sure, you know, you believe in everyone's equal, but I know you don't really believe that everyone is equal, and you can just look at your country to see that uh, confirmed. But when they got serious about it, <laughs> that it's not just a glittering generality, uh, that it is a divine truth, and we're willing to act upon it, sacrifice for it, and bring it into reality, that was something that the British rightly found to be incredibly intimidating because it was really the death knoll for authoritarianism and the British Empire. Now, it took a long time, but indeed the principles of democracy spread throughout the world because democracy in America had survived its greatest test. And that example would continue to be a compelling example for oppressed people everywhere. Uh, it is a reality uh, in America. Why can't it be a reality here? Now, obviously, race, prejudice, and bigotry did not end with the Civil War. But it was a huge step forward in affirming the principles that we have all hearkened to in our darkest moments, like right now, where we believe black lives matter because all men are created equal. You know, that's why. And that has been, you know, a clarion call in every reform movement in our history. And it has always proved to be, Emerson would say, the sheet anchor in every storm. It's the thing that will hold us true. And if we hold true to it, we'll come out of this well, better than we went into it, just like we came out of the Civil War, better than we went into it. We did free four million human beings from slavery. That's no mean accomplishment. And 750,000 people died to bring that about. It was a huge sacrifice, but we were better coming out of it than we were going into it. And Emerson believed that that would always be the case. If you adhere to your principles, those ideals, then you will prevail. And you will end up in a period of chaos coming out of it with a better a better world than what you went into. Just like I believe, quite frankly, Erica, I really believe we're going to come out of this chaos and this turmoil a better country than we were going into it. Collective action, Emerson lead, was essential to bring about change. In his 1855 lecture on slavery, he was explicit on this point. Quote, but whilst I insist on the doctrine of the independence and the inspiration of the individual, I do not cripple but exalt the social action. A wise man delights in the powers of many people. That was his commitment, mass movement. And in a democracy like ours, we're seeing that right now, spontaneous mass movement and demands for reform based upon the principle that we are all equal. And that's what Emerson was arguing for then. That's what we're arguing for now. He would be part and parcel of this movement, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. He was part and parcel of the first Black Lives Matter movement, or one of the original movements in New England leading up to and through the Civil War. Dr. Len Gujan, who's been Distinguished University Fellow and Professor of American Literature at the University of Scranton, past president of the Ralph Waldo Emerson Society and recipient of its Distinguished Achievement Award. Dr. Gujan is author of Virtue's Hero, Emerson, Anti-Slavery and Reform, Emerson and Eros, 
and Emerson's truth, Emerson's wisdom. His most recent study is titled Culture and Conflict, New England, Old England, and the Civil War. And he spoke to us about the research he's been doing and the implications for our time. For more information on the web, scranton.edu, scranton.edu. And Gujan is spelled G-O-U-G-E-O-N, Dr. Len Gujan. G-O-U-G-E-O-N and for more information on the web scranton.edu the most recent study titled Culture and Conflict New England, Old England and the Civil War.